Hello, and welcome to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I am your host, Mr. Miller. This podcast will cover a number of topics that happened on this date in history. Please visit the podcast webpage at thishappentoday.buzzsprout.com. There you can download the notes page, which will help you organize the information, as well as develop your own ideas on how these events change the world around us. If you're interested in hearing more, please consider subscribing so you will not miss out on what happens tomorrow in history. Today is April 14th. On the evening of April 14th, 1865, while attending a special performance of the comedy Our American Cousin, President Abraham Lincoln was shot. Accompanying him at Ford's Theater that night were his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, a 28-year-old officer named Major Henry R. Rathbone, and Rathbone's fiancée, Clara Harris. After the play was in progress, a figure with a drawn Derringer pistol stepped into the presidential box, aimed, and fired. The president slumped forward. The assassin, John Wilkes Booth, dropped the pistol and waved a dagger. Rathbone lunged at him, and those slashed in the arm forced the killer to, to the railing. Booth leapt from, the, leapt from the balcony and caught the spur of his left boot on a flag draped over the rail and broke a bone on his leg on landing. Though injured, he rushed out the back door and disappeared into the night on horseback. A doctor in the audience, Dr. Charles Leal, immediately went upstairs to the box. The bullet had entered through Lincoln's left ear and lodged behind his right eye. He was paralyzed and barely breathing. He was carried across 10th Street to a boarding house opposite the theater, but the doctor's best efforts failed. Nine hours later, at 7.22 a.m. on April 15th, Lincoln died. At almost the same moment Booth fired the fatal shot, his accomplice, Lewis Powell, attacked Lincoln's Secretary of State, William Henry Seward, at his home on Lafayette Square. Seward lay in bed, recovering from a carriage accident. Powell entered the mansion, claiming to have a delivery of medicine from the Secretary's doctor. Seward's son, Frederick, was brutally beaten while trying to keep Powell from his father's door. Powell slashed the secretary's throat twice, then fought his way past Seward's son, Augustus, an attending hospital corps veteran and a State Department messenger. Powell escaped into the night, believing his deed complete. However, a metal surgical collar saved Seward from a certain death. The secretary lived another seven years, during which he retained his seat with the Johnson administration and purchased Alaska from Russia in 1867. There are at least four conspirators in addition to Booth involved in the mayhem. Booth was later shot and captured while hiding in a barn near Bowling Green, Virginia, and died later the same day, April 26, 1865. Four co-conspirators, Powell, George Azarot, David Harold, and Mary Surratt, were hanged at the gallows of the old penitentiary on the site of present-day Fort McNair on July 7, 1865. In 1956, Ampex Corps demonstrated its first commercial videotape recorder, the VR-1000, which was the first of Ampex's line of 2-inch quadruplex videotape recorders. CBS was one of the early TV companies to adopt the technology, which allowed a one-hour-long program to be recorded on one reel of tape. One reel of tape cost $300, equivalent to $2,000 in the year 2000. A recorder cost about $75,000 to $100,000, or about a half a million dollars in the year 2000. Early attempts to use fixed-head audio-magnetic tape technology to record video for TV applications delivered inadequate performance and reliability. Several variations of rotary-head designs were evaluated until 1955, a team led by Charles Ginsburg and Ampex employed a transverse scanning topology conceived by audio pioneer Ray Dolby that yielded gratifying results. 
A spinning drum carried four quadruplex wire round ferrite cord heads that moved in a transverse path across a two inch wide tape. Improvements in the head design coupled with frequency modulation of the video signal culminated in the demonstration of the VRX-1000 at a 1956 broadcaster's convention in Chicago that stunned an audience with its photographic quality pictures. The production model, VR-1000, was succeeded by the VR-2000 in 1964 in later generations of the design that became the mainstay of TV broadcast networks through the early 1970s. The quadruplex technology was also applied to scientific data storage applications in the late 60s. The development of helical scanning in which tracks are recorded at a small angle to the tape path, combined with transistorized electronics, yielded a more compact and significantly lower cost machine for less demanding studio and industrial applications in the Ampex VR660 in 1961. Competing recorders emerged such as the Sony PV100 in Japan and International Video Corporation, the IBC, Model 800, in the U.S. Bosch and Philips entered the market in Europe. Consumer rec recorder manufacturers engaged in the legendary Betamax versus VHS videocassette format wars of the 80s. Consumer tape recording cartridges developed for helical scanned heads were adapted for new data recording application. By the 90s, this business grew to about 20 manufacturers worldwide, but then subsequently declined. In 2014, the Netherlands introduced glow-in-the-dark road markings on a small stretch of highway in the county in the country to test the concept. The markings are made with a glow-in-the-dark paint that charges during the day and glows at night. It was done as an effort to replace streetlights and save energy in the country. The paint contains photoluminescing powder that charges up during the daytime and slowly releases a green glow at night, doing away with the needs for streetlights. Interactive artist Dan Rusengard teamed up with a Dutch civil engineering firm, Heijmans, to work on the idea. The technology is being tested with an official launch due later this month. It is the first time Glowing Lines technology has been piloted on the road and can be seen on N329 in Aas, approximately 100 kilometers southeast of Amsterdam. Once the paint is absorbed daylight, it can glow for up to eight hours in the dark. I was completely amazed that we somehow spend billions on the design of and R&D of cars, but somehow overlook the roads, which actually determine the way our landscape looks. Heinzmann's was already working on projects involving energy-neutral streetlights when Mr. Rusengard teamed up with the company. I thought that was updating an old idea, and I forced him to look at movies of jellyfish. How does a jellyfish give light? It has no solar panel. It has no energy bill. And then we went back to the drawing board and came up with these paints, which charge up during the daytime and get, give off light at night, he said. Heijman said the glow-in-the-dark technology is also a sustainable alternative to places where no conventional lighting is present. present. Innovation on roads needs to be encouraged, said Professor Pete Thomas from Lowborough's University's Transport Safety Research Center. But the new technologies need to prove themselves. We have some high-visibility markings already on roads in the UK, plus cat's eye technology, etc. So the question is, how much better than these is this alternative? If we put this technology on all unlit roads, that would be a lot of kilometers, and it would be a big investment, so if safety improvement is the target, then we need hard evidence about how this compares to what we already have and back up any safety claims, he said. The UK Highways Agency said it was watching the trial in the Netherlands with interest, but said that previous studies had shown that luminescent road paint would be unsuitable for those for use in this country. It said it would take several things into account when deciding whether to include luminescent road markings in its standard designs. These would be include 
how far in advance road markings could be seen, how skid resistant they were, how visible they were during the day, and how they would perform in winter when there are few hours of daylight. Initially, the team also had plans to develop weather symbols that appeared on the road once temperature reached a certain level. A temperature-sensitive paint mixture would be used to create giant snowflake shapes on the tarmac to warn users that the road may be icy. The current stretch of glow-in-the-dark road in Aust does not include this te temperature-sensitive technology. It is a pilot project at this stage and is expected to expand internationally later this year. Dutch media report that Heijman is keeping is keen to use the paint on other roads but has not negotiated yet any contracts. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. ThePeopleHistory.com President Lincoln Assassination at www.loc.gov Videotape recorder released at ComputerHistory.org and Netherlands Glow in the Dark Roads at BBC.com The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana created by Kevin McLeod on Incompetech.com if you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.